0: Greeting, friends, and welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. Can you believe that we are coming up on Rosh Hashanah? It is so close, and I hope that you are getting ready, getting focused, setting your intentions, getting excited for this amazing day, this amazing time of year. And part of preparing for Rosh Hashanah is setting your intention on what you want the year to look like, how are you going to grow this year, what are going to be your resolutions and your goals. And part of putting together such a plan is knowing what you're going to be learning about and what you're going to be reading. So I guess I want to start out by first of all, recommending if you haven't yet picked up a copy of my new book, The Four Elements of an Empowered Life. I really hope that you'll consider picking it up because it's a great, great book for this time of year. It really speaks about how to look inward, understand yourself, understand your mission and your purpose in this world, and put together a plan um, as to how you're going to accomplish that mission and become the person that you want to be and show up to the world in your best possible self. Along those lines of great new books that are out there. I'm excited to introduce to you uh, my guest on today's podcast, who is also the author of a brand new book that will help you grow in a very different way. His name is Rabbi Daniel Friedman. If I had to give him a nickname, I'd nickname him like the Worldwide Rabbi. He has been all over the place in so many Um, So many places where he served as a rabbi and community leader. So here's his bio. Rabbi Friedman was born in Manchester and grew up in Sydney, Australia. He has served communities in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and the U.K. And by the way, when we say Canada, we're specifically speaking about Edmonton, Canada. Uh, his articles have appeared in the Journal of Halakha and Contemporary Society, the Jewish Press, the Jerusalem Post, H.com, and numerous other outlets. He was the inaugural chair of the National Holocaust Monument of Canada and is a world-renowned expert on the intersection of halacha and international relations. So he is the author of the new book called The Transformative Daf, which is based on the Yomi cycle, which is the practice of learning one page of Talmud a day and completing studying the entire Talmud every seven and a half years. We're going to speak about that. Um, in detail, in our conversation together. In his new book, Rabbi Friedman takes each page of the Talmud or at least the tractate of Talmud that he just released, and shares thoughts about how to make those lessons relevant and practical in our lives. So we're going to have a great conversation that I hope you'll enjoy. Because Rosh Hashanah is coming up, we speak a lot about Rosh Hashanah and how to make this year's Rosh Hashanah meaningful, how to absorb what Rosh Hashanah means for us this year, our second pandemic Rosh Hashanah. Um, However, you're going to be observing it uh, and and observing uh, the guidelines that come along with it. Uh, So we speak about that. We speak about his new book, The Dafyomi, Finding Your Place in Learning. Uh, It's a really great discussion. And I think that you'll find it very, very inspiring and a great way to get you in the mindset of Rosh Hashanah. So without further ado, here we go. My conversation with Rabbi Daniel Friedman. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Okay, welcome Rabbi Daniel Friedman to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. How are you?
1: Great, Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much, Rabbi Buxbaum, for having me here today. It's a real honor and privilege to be with you.
0: Very excited to have you and to discuss your book and to discuss your career and uh, to discuss your life, which seems to be really, really fascinating to get to know you a little bit from the inside and the outside. So let's start with your career, because that really seems exciting, especially for me, I did, you know, so I do some rabbi work, but I did some synagogue work also early in my career. Uh, in Rockville, Maryland, but I look at your resume and you're like Mr. Rabbi worldwide, you know, you've been been everywhere. So let's begin. If you can just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your career, which from what I understand from your book, you didn't start out even as a rabbi. So how did this come about and what what, what has been your overall mission and what pushes you throughout your career?
1: of a correction I actually did start off as a rabbi and then I took a bit of a hiatus um I was a rabbi of a shul at the age at the tender age of 21 I had a shul in New, it was called Newtown synagogue New were Town you married shul. then by the way I was not yet married okay I I was single I come back from yeshiva in Israel and there was a shul that needed a rabbi and I, I was actually just off to university but I already had smicha. And my Rosh Hashim in Sydney said, take the shul, they need you. I didn't even know at the time that I was going to be a rabbi. Uh, I I thought about it, but I was actually going off to to law school. And I took the shul as a part-time small community and it it really blossomed and it was really my calling. So I was there for three years, uh, two and a half years, and then I moved to America and found my basharat. Wow. You're York- not from
0: Sydney or America, from what I understand.
1: So I actually did grow up in Australia. Oh, yeah. I was born in Great Britain, but I grew up in Australia.
0: Got it, got it. Wow, What? so your accent probably has, you know, a little bit hints of everything.
1: Yeah, well, I try to sound exotic to whoever I'm talking to.
0: Exactly, <laughs> got it. All right, and- bud, so you're in America, you find your basharat.
1: Yes, Yeah. So uh, and then I, so I spent the first couple of years uh, of our marriage, I was working in New York City in, in financial field. Uh, and then I realized that I missed the rabbinate and we went off to Edmonton, Canada for 16 years, followed by London, England for the last three years.
0: So you're um, when you're in Sydney, and you're in Edmonton, I'm guessing these are small, relatively small congregations.
1: Yeah, so in Newtown Synagogue, about 60 families, 60 households. Um, Edmonton, not tiny, about 250 households. I would say a mid-sized community as far as you know, American communities go. Uh, and then here in London, with 1,200 family. Units so wow. sizeable. Yes, yes. So,
0: so what was that like? And That's that. I mean, that is a completely different experience. Being a rabbi in a small, you know, small town, a small synagogue, and then going to something so big. What was that transition
1: like? Uh, it was a big step. It was a big leap. But I, I will say that my wife and I thought of ourselves already as more than just uh, ministering to Edmonton. I, I was the of the Holocaust Monument Council of Canada. So I spent a lot of time in Ottawa, a bit of time in Toronto, uh, and I was the vice president of the Rubinical Council of America as well, uh, prior to leaving North America. So I was involved, we were both involved really on a national or North American scene. And so it wasn't that I was, I think that the world that we live in today is a, you know, a friend of mine, colleague of mine who spent time as a rabbi in Nebraska whose grandfather was a rabbi in a small town in New Jersey says that he feels that his rabbinate in Nebraska was closer to the centers like New York than his grandfather when he was in New Jersey just because of the way the world is
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and ease of communication and ease of travel this is all obviously before COVID uh, so not so much ease of travel now, but it's getting better. And as with Hashem, we will, please God, get back to where we need to be very soon.
0: Amen, amen. Well, just to ask you, and I know it's, it's, it's early in our conversation to get personal, but I'm just curious because, you know, those are, there's, w- within the rabbinate, and especially looking at your career, I, I wonder, cause you have sort of a lot of those small town feels where as a small town rabbi, you're able to connect with individuals. It's, there's something very, very personal. Um, but then there's also the aspect of being a rabbi sort of on, on, on the big stage, the big scale, um, you know, leading up the different projects that, that you led up. And, you know, even within the rabbinate, I know different rabbis are driven by different things. Some by the very personal aspect, some more by, by, by the big stage. You've kind of done both. So I'm wondering like, what's your, what, what drives you in that sense?
1: So I think it's all about. Achieving as much as one can in terms of our purpose here on earth. We have a limited time on earth, 70, 80, 120 years. And every moment counts. So the more that one can maximize one's reach and effectiveness in the limited time that we are given, the greater one's accomplishment and fulfillment, fulfillment of purpose. So we're here to bring spirituality into this world. We're here to elevate this world. And When one is a pastor, rabbi, by the bedside, one is bringing spirituality into the world, one is inspiring uh, someone who needs connection with the divine at that moment. At the same time, one can talk in shul in front of hundreds of people and maybe have very little impact. I mean, one hopes that one does, but it's that balance that that as a rabbi, you strive to, to combine. I remember. At one point, a rabbinic figure who was not a rabbi of a shul came to visit us in Edmonton, the scholar residence, and we sat down, and he pretty much said he envied what I was doing in a small community, that he spoke to thousands of people on a regular basis, and yet he never knew if there was a connection there, what he had accomplished, what he had achieved. And sometimes we know, sometimes we don't know, and no doubt he achieved so much uh, with what he had said and, and done, but sometimes it was hard for him to appreciate that. And I think whether you're a rabbi or whoever you are, you need to find out how am I going to maximize my mission by contributing as much as I can to making this world a better place, making this world a more spiritual place, to helping people, to building people up. And however you do that, you know sometimes those will be big things, sometimes those will be the small details, but everything is important because just the big is not going to work, but just the small is also only going to achieve so much.
0: It's beautiful. I remember this, uh, I, the, I think there's a famous line that says there's two types of teachers out there. There's certain teachers that love their subject and they teach it because they love the subject. And there are certain teachers that teach because they love students. You know, they say often people that teach younger teachers that teach younger students often teach because they love children, they love education. And sometimes you find especially people that are teaching at the college level, they say, you know, they teach because more they love their subject more than they love their students. And it's I guess you you really need both to, to be effective. But I remember even before I went out to be a rabbi, somebody asked me this question. They're like, is this about, you know, you, the expression of your own talents? Is this because you want to connect with people? Or is this a godly mission? Like, you know, what where is this rooted? And it's a it's a powerful question, I think, to know like what is you whenever you're getting into any sort of work, but especially this type of work like what's what's the real drive behind it, because it could be coming from all those different places, the same thing I think you could ask that with any job like. Is it about the money, is it about you're passionate about the product, is it you're passionate about the customers that you're going to serve and I think once you have that clarity it sort of helps you you know drives you in, in, in whatever you do.
1: You know, I think absolutely but I, I think the. You know, there, there are the parallel tracks that work. I mean, you talk about teaching, uh, whether it is something that one is doing because one likes the subject or, the, or being with the kids. You know, my father, who is in his 70s and still teaching, he oh, is wow. not, a, um, he's not a Jewish studies teacher. he's a geography teacher. Uh, although over the years, he has personally taught many bar mitzvah boys and potential converts. Um, he is a... Learned individual who learns Torah on a regular basis. We're going to get to a little later. Um, the Dafyomi, he himself um, is an avid Dafyomi learner. But he's a geography teacher, and he wrote five geography textbooks. And he's one of you know, a major inspiration for me in my life. And at the same time, he's still in the classroom. And I asked him, "Why didn't you ever go into administration? Why didn't you ever become a principal?" He says, "That's just not what I want to do. I want okay. to teach." I want to teach, but at the same time, that didn't detract from his ambition and desire to write those textbooks, to be able to say, you know what, I I can teach, but I can also, there are other ways that I can expand my reach, expand my influence. And, And I think that in whatever profession one has chosen, there are ways to be able to multiply one's accomplishments.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. I love it. So as we're coming up to Rosh Hashanah, so here being a rabbi, I'm sure you have a lot. How, so is that? how many years, how many Rosh Hashanahs were you up there on the pulpit? Now, looking back.
1: Wow, we're talking over two decades.
0: Okay over two decades. I guess since you already gave away your age when you started, I guess if you would give that away. We'd give, we don't want to get too personal, you know, get into age, but you look, like, uh, you look like a young man. Um, but uh, there's a lot of Rosh Hashanahs and uh, probably depending on where you were, you, Rosh Hashanah is different depending on what the world is going through and what your congregation is going through and what you're going through. So just to get us a little bit into the Rosh Hashanah mode, if you could think back to all those years, like, do you have one Rosh Hashanah or two Rosh Hashanah, something that was especially meaningful, maybe a sermon that was especially meaningful, or something that was going on that made that Rosh Hashanah stand out as something special?
1: Well, I think probably the most unique, tragically, uh, Rosh Hashanah that we've had to deal with is last year, and really this year is not. Uh, too different Uh, for all of us it's been you know coronavirus has been a life changer for everyone in every in some aspect of a person's life whether your listeners have sadly lost a loved one or suffered um, from long COVID, or suffered financially or suffered academically there is not a person in on this planet who has not been affected negatively negatively impacted by coronavirus. And many people made it back to Shul last year, many people didn't. Uh, Most people hopefully will make it back this year. Although, like I mentioned, I'm from Australia, my parents and siblings in Australia will not be in Shul this Rosh Hashanah because Australia is still under lockdown. And so this is a very unique set of circumstances, but we have to always bear in mind that everything that the almighty does when he creates the world, the pasuk, the verse says, God created everything in equilibrium. So if we have a major pandemic that is hitting the world and transfers, transmits from one person to another so quickly and so easily, then there must be a corresponding force of positivity, of positive energy, That works the same way, so one can be a super spreader when it comes to coronavirus God forbid, but that means that one can also be a super spreader when it comes to positive energy. Mm -hmm. We take for granted the relationships that we enter the interactions that we have. But our greats in the Talmud didn't take those for granted Uh, we're told of Remy Yochem and Zakai who was. The first person whenever he would bump into people in the marketplace he was the first to greet greet them he was a super spreader of positivity Mm -hmm. didn't matter jew non-jew he that was his goal every day his goal is i'm going to be the first person to say hello right and remember you know that's the that's if that's your modus operandi each day then it, it changes the day and that because the moment you've said hello to somebody and given them a smile then they are tempted or pushed, encouraged, motivated to do the same to the next person. You become a super spread of positivity. I mean, we, last year, we came into Rosh Hashanah after just having signed the Abraham Accords. And Abraham is a huge figure uh, on Rosh Hashanah. Between the first day reading of Rosh Hashanah and the second day reading of Rosh Hashanah, we have Abraham, who finally has a child, Isaac and then the next day's reading he is told to bind him to offer him up as a sacrifice and at the same time we also read on Rosh Hashanah of ways that God remembered the world beyond our people beginning with Noah Noah's in the ark and after 40 days and ultimately a year in the ark God says fine it's time to leave it's time to go out but our sages contrast Noah and Abraham in terms of their attitude to the world. When Noah was spending 120 years building his ark, he sat there building and building and building. People would come by and ask him, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Abraham, in contrast, would go around the country and really around the region telling people, there is a God, there's one God, monotheism is the way to go, idolatry, paganism, not the way to go. Abraham was a super spreader. A super spreader of monotheism of morality of goodness in the world and we we know that what one sneeze god forbid if somebody on the other side of the world today can have negative ramifications thousands of miles away unless, they're wearing, that,
0: their mask. unless <laughs>
1: they're wearing
0: their <it. laughs> mask that's
1: true that's true but remember <laughs> if, we're, if we're if we're working in equilibrium So when we're told to put our mask on to stop being a super spreader, then in order to be a super spreader of positivity, it means removing the mask. Mm, All too often we place a mask and we become ineffective, right? We have Esther, who is in King Achashverosh's palace in the story of Purim, wearing a proverbial mask, a figurative mask, masking who she is and achieving nothing. Mordechai says to her, you could just be a blip for history, or you could be that game changer, that super spreader of positivity. But it means taking the mask off. She takes the mask off. She saves the day.
0: I love it. I love it. I, my my son, he said something very very profound. My ten year old son. Um, and as and as you're speaking and you're sh- sharing a very very positive spin on coronavirus that we're going through, so. You know, my kids remember because obviously we really, you know, we spoke to them a lot when when Corona when COVID first started happening and things were shutting down and everything was changing. And there was a lot out there in terms of inspiration messages like the one that you just shared and positive messages and what's God trying to tell us and how is this going to create positive change in the world and what are we going to put away and I think that at that point when it was still fresh and we were Faced with this fresh challenge, we the world, you know, but especially, you know, within our community, which, which, you know, I think within our the the Orthodox community, the Jewish community as a whole, you, you know, we're used to immediately looking at things like what's God trying to tell us, what's God trying to tell us, hopefully it's like that in the greater world also, I'm not as familiar. So we have all these positive messages and there's a surge of it and, and there's also the surge of, of positivity, you know everyone's saying okay concerts are canceled, some musicians are going on online and you know everyone is very much like we're, we're ready to step up, we're ready to step up. But now it's a year and a half. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of COVID fatigue, there's a lot of Corona fatigue, and we're, we're, we don't hear those messages that much anymore. So my son was saying, because again, like what, in the beginning of the summer, we thought Corona's over, like, you know, we're going back, we're going back to a regular life. And then suddenly now we're, we're talking Corona again. So my son says, he says, you know what, maybe Hashem is bringing back COVID because we didn't get the message right the first time. You know, maybe we, we, we have to do a little bit more introspection. But the reality is, I, I feel like, you know, even last year, I remember the pre-Rosh Hashanah talks that I gave. And people were like asking, like, how is Rosh Hashanah going to look this year? Because we're not together and a lot of people were not going to synagogue. And it was sort of, there was a certain sense of like, we can do this. You know, it's just going to be one year. Like, we can do this and let's step up. But this year we're coming in, and like you said, a lot of people are going to be going through this again. How, how do we get that back? How do we get back this sense of like, you know, we got to do this? It's Corona. This is something like, let's step up rather than this again. Like, you know, even those who figured out a way to do it last year are like, you know what? I just can't do this a second time. I'm just, you know, skipping high holidays this year. Like, ha- how do you bring that fire back? going in this year now for a second time?
1: So I think it's a good question. I think, first of all, um, I, I do want to, I, I mean, I, God bless your son. I, you know, it's lovely that your children are inspired. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant or reticent to, to start thinking about, you know, why God does things or doesn't do things. And I think that there's been a lot of tragedy that we really could have done without, and we, we don't need the um, re- Hash if we can avoid it, and we hope and pray that that this will be behind us very soon. But I think that sometimes in the span of history, we see things in a very narrow, right here, right now moment. I mean, think about world wars that went for years. Right? Whether it was First World War, Second World War, further back in history, the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War. I mean, these were you know, this is not a long period of time, and This may be with us, you know, for a lot longer than we've expected, and we don't know what the future will hold, and we, the challenge is how do we live with it and live inspired and be able to still uh, make a difference. I think what's important, I heard an amazing idea um, from a, someone who was from, whose family was from the former Soviet Union who had remained committed to Judaism through years of of communism, his family. And this was their family story. The family story was we took the reins and we still managed to direct, and this is what we have to show for it now, children and grandchildren who were committed to the Jewish people and to Judaism. And each of us right now needs to be thinking about, you know, okay, I'll come back to show when it's all over. Because maybe it won't be all over. I mean, we hope and pray that it it is, but maybe it won't be tomorrow, or maybe it won't be in a month's time or six months time or a year's time, maybe even two years time, who knows? We hope and pray, but we don't know. What we have to do right now is to be able to say, I am the master of my destiny and my family's destiny for generations to come. I can either sit back and say wake me up when it's all over and maybe I might be able to snap, snap out of my uh, lackadaisical attitude that you know I've just fallen into this rut of not going to shul every week because I've found other things to do. Or I could say I'm going to be the parent and grandparent and great-grandparent that's going to sit on the wall of my family that they're going to point to and they're going to say, you know what? Grandpa went to shul, even during coronavirus, and that's why we are here today as proud Jews. we get to write that story. And that's really what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are about. On Rosh Hashanah, we get to write, it's inscribed, Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And sages tell us that we are the ones who are doing that inscribing and sealing by our own commitments, by our own actions, by making the decision that this is how the year ahead is going to look, this is how the years ahead are going to look. And so that's in our hands. All we can control in life, for the most part, are our responses to the stimuli out there. We don't know why God acts in a certain way, but we can respond by being the very best versions of ourselves possible.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that answer. Let's get to your book. Let's talk about your book, which is interesting. We'll have to talk about this and break this down because it is actually Rosh Hashanah themed, although it is not a book on Rosh Hashanah. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. So you just put out this book, The Transformative Daf. Now, not all the listeners know this term Daf, So let's just break it down um, for them. The book is based on the Daf Yomi cycle. And uh, the Dafyomi cycle, for those who are not familiar, is the the, the practice that uh, is a global practice for I don't know two hundred years. I don't know when.
1: I'm not sure what. For, 100. We're, one hundred. We're actually just coming up to the centenary.
0: Wow. Okay. Fantastic. So one one hundred years of of as a community, as a Jewish community, learning one page of Talmud a day. The Talmud, for those of you who are not familiar with the Talmud, the Talmud really is the full collection whenever you hear about Jewish tradition or our sages say, like, what is this, wh- wh- where is this coming from? What is the text that is being referred to? So much of those conversations, not all, but much of those conversations are rooted in the Talmud, which was written in, what do we say, 5th, 6th century? Something like that, and what the Talmud is is it's it's conversations, it's conversations between our sages, most of which most of which covered Jewish law and how we extract Jewish law from the Torah but it's not only conversations about law it's also conversations about personal growth uh there's stories in there there is um ethics in there there's mysticism in there so it's really this big collection and all of the codifications of of torah law really come from as as an outgrowth of those conversations so there are what is it th- three th- how many pages of Talmud are there well, let's
1: say it again. It was a little quiet. Okay. I think it's 2,711, something, something
0: like, that. like that. There's thou- thousands of pages and it takes about seven and a half years if you're learning one page a day. Now learning one page a day is, it's it's complicated because these are complex conversations. This is not like light reading that like you get cozy, you know, in bed and read a page of Talmud. You know, it takes, it takes some time. If you're trying to figure it out on your own, it can take several hours. If you're trying to go deep, it can take, you know, days if you want to really go deep. So it's somewhat of an ambitious, um, it's it's ambitious to try to do a page a day, but yet there are thousands and thousands of people that learn a page of Talmud every single day, and they're learning the same page every single day. So over the course of the seven and a half year cycle, they are completing the Talmud. So uh, you, Rabbi Friedman, you had this wonderful and I don't know that anything else like this exists at least not that I've seen but what what you try to do with this book this transformative daf is to actually give the the person learning the daf who may get all caught up in the technical details and the tedious details and the academic aspects of torah law and 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 it seems like you're kind of asking the question of it like yeah but what are you, what are you taking away from it so you have this beautiful book here, which really um, which really gives someone a very, very real, very practical takeaway. What was your what was your motivation? How did this book come about? And I'm sorry, by the way, for being so long-winded. Maybe I, mean, I, <laughs> I should let you say all that, but I was just excited to, to share that with the listeners.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I've been doing this, I've been blogging the DAF for about seven years now. So I personally have been learning Da Yomi for a couple of decades since my yeshiva days Uh, so you know probably over 20 years i've been learning the daf and it was important to me already from those yeshiva days like you say uh, sometimes we can spend in yeshiva days on one page because in in yeshiva you learn things very intensively but for me I, i just felt that i needed a broader understanding of what was happening in the scope of Tara. And so I started doing with a Harissa of mine, taking just an hour each day to do the Dafyomi and just cover some ground just to get a broader knowledge. And it's been something that I've been doing. I'm I'm on my fourth cycle now. And I got to a point where personally I said, okay, now I've covered a lot of information but what has it done for me personally? What am I walking away from? And often this is the criticism of those who learned Afyomi. People say, well, what did you get out of it? What do you remember? What do you remember from what you did uh, three weeks ago, let alone, th- let alone three years ago? So I said...
0: I just want okay. to interrupt one second. I just want to share that that with the listeners to really appreciate that for a moment, that there is criticism of those who learn. That That's like... <laughs> They say, Mika Amchisrael, who is like you Jewish people, how like intense we are, where you have such a beautiful, beautiful practice of learning a page a day. And there'll be critics on that and say, hey, but are you doing it the right way? Anyhow, sorry, Kerry, I just wanted to point that out.
1: <laughs> right, so, so the truth is, it's already a debate in the Talmud itself. Yeah. We have rabbis who had encyclopedic knowledge, and we had others who were what we call Oker Harem, were able to uproot mountains, who were able to, as anal- what we would call today, analyze, to delve into a topic and, and analyze it, uh, unpack it, uh, tease it apart, right? So there are two different, and I think that's, it's important when we think about educational systems that everybody has a different uh, way of learning, and especially when it comes to kids, it's important that we do hone in on what their particular learning style is and how we bring out the best in them, instead of just believing that every every kid should be cookie cutter. That's as an aside. So in terms of people who are learning every day and covering a lot of ground, and Daf Yomi now is tens of thousands of people around the world. And it's not only religious Jews, especially in the current cycle, there's been a, a bit of an uptake. You can find Facebook forums of people who, who are not orthodox and you know maybe very um, non-religious, but they but they want to be able to understand what our tradition is about, and the Talmud is key work of our tradition after the Tanakh, after the written law. The Talmud is the oral law, and so they're getting engaged and they get and they're learning. But the question I ask myself is, okay. If I could take one thing from the page of the Talmud each day and be able to walk away with it and say, how's it going to affect my life? How's my day going to be different today from something that I've learned? And I said to myself, well, if this is something I'm struggling with, then as a rabbi, it should be something that I should be teaching um, my folk as well, my my people. So I started teaching it uh, on a daily basis just one piece from the Talmud and, say, and said, to my, and said you know, how can we make this relevant to our own lives? I then went on holiday, as one does, on vacation, you know, my annual uh, vacation. And I said, well, wait a sec, now what? So I said, well, I better write it up so that nobody's missing out on their daily learning. People are into a groove now. You get into a groove with the daffyomi. It's a daily thing. You can't miss a day. And so I started blogging it. I originally blogged it under the title Life Yomi. So Duff Yomi means page a day. So Life Yomi, life each uh, each day. I love that. And so it was, I was blogging under lifeyomi.com. Uh, I then at, at, it reached a, an iteration further down a couple of years into it where I said, wait a sec, maybe it should be Duff Yomi. What does mm. the Duff <laughs> mean to me? So that it was under uh, there, there is a URL that ends in so it was d a f y o
0: .me. I love yeah, it.
1: Right. Uh, and then I moved to the Times of Israel because the Times of Israel just had a much wider audience. Uh, and then eventually, <laughs> um, some very generous individuals came to the fore and said, "Would like to publish uh, the the blog that you're doing." And then this huge leap between Blog and published material, and that's where we're at now. I'm I'm working on um, producing one volume that will come out every month or two, on the Daf. And the idea is it's really twofold. It's designed that it should be accessible to everybody, layman to great to learn a Rabbi alike, novice to someone who is doing the Daf every day and has been doing so for years it's accessible to everybody. Whether you're someone who does the DAF on a daily basis and wants to be able to walk away with something more tangible, or you just want to be part of the conversation and you want to find something, a daily piece of inspiration and be part of that global conversation. It was Rabbi Meir Shapiro, who, unbelievable character. So he initiated the idea a hundred years ago. He was both a Russia Shiva of the Yeshiva called Chachme Lublin in Poland. He was also a member of the SIEM, the Polish Parliament. Uh, he He was representative there. He was a member of Parliament. And he introduced the Dafyomi to the Aguda Convention 100 years ago. And he said, imagine if a Jew in Poland could get on a boat and get off the boat in New York and be on the same page of the Talmud when he walks into the synagogue in New York. It was revolutionary. I mean, here we have the Talmud. it's been around for a millennium and a half, and nobody ever said, "Well, wait a sec, maybe." I mean, we we all in the same thing every day. We all pray the same prayers three times a day. Why don't we learn the same thing every day? And we've seen one cycle after another. It's it's snowballed into something that 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 is uh, that it, it's an amazing social movement now of of dafyomi. And I encourage your uh, listeners please do get involved and, and the transformative Daf. my book is a way, is an entry point into us, even if you're not ready to pick up the Daf yet.
0: Is it, yeah, yeah. it's a, a really important conversation. Um, and I don't think that we've had it yet in this podcast. So I, I wanna lean into something that you mentioned earlier as, as you started speaking about this, where you mentioned that within the Talmud itself, there is this discussion of how to properly learn it. To try to cover ground in an, more of an encyclopedic way, or uh, to try to uproot and get into the an- analytic side of it, um, and we have over here a very wi- the the listeners of this show is a, really a wide range a wide range of of listeners in terms of both their Jewish background but also their their interests, and I'm sure as a rabbi when you're dealing with so many people and their spiritual growth, you need to guide people. As to where they should be investing their efforts into their Torah study, into their spiritual growth. And people are different. And the people have different styles and what what may may excite them. So, you know, if someone comes to you, you're speaking now, you know, to this broad audience, someone comes to you, you know, and says, Rabbi, how do I know for me? What should be, I want to get into daily study or you know, weekly study, whatever it is, but how do I know what's going to be the area of Torah that's going to speak to me? How, how do you advise people?
1: That's a great question. First of all, the Talmud already gives us a formula. The formula, the Talmud says, is divide it into three. Your learning should be divided into three. One third should be devoted to text study, scriptural study. You know, need to be conversant in the weekly parasha and other parts of the Tanakh, the prophets and the writings. Another part should be devoted to Talmud study. Another part should be devoted to Halacha, to Jewish law. But there needs to be the the right mix. Now, within that mix, I I think the three-way divide is a general rule of thumb, but each person needs to find their own specific space. I mean, we say four times a day. Uh, we quote the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot in Ethics of the Fathers, the teaching that says, um, may it be your will, that the temple will be rebuilt, and grant us our portion in your Torah. I say four times a day, we do it at the beginning of Shacharit and then each time after the Amidah. So four times a day we're we're saying that prayer. And what are we saying in that prayer? We're saying, give us my our portion. What's my portion? I have something that's unique to me that nobody else can discover. We're told our sages tell us, everything that an erudite student will come up with in terms of novel life from Torah was already given to Moses on Sinai. The the kernel is already there. Now you need to go and figure out what is it that you're going to bring to the fore. You're You're going to take that seed that you've been taught and be able to develop in your own mind and be able to teach it. We don't have, everybody has an obligation to teach. We say that we must be Lilmo lame Lishmo Velasos, that we want to learn and teach to, to keep and to do. We have to teach. If you know a little bit of Tara and you know someone that doesn't know anything, then you have to teach them, you have the obligation. We're all part of the one family, we're all responsible for one another. But the way that you are able to convey that, that, that that's your specific personal prism. And the way that you have now blossomed the Torah, again, within the framework of the rules of the Torah, we can't go beyond the boundaries of what the Torah um, allows for, but within the traditional way of, of understanding the Torah, then you have your own specific way to be able to hone in on what is your passion. And maybe some, for some people, the passion will be, will be Chumash, right? You know, and, and within that Chumash as well, within that you know, weekly Torah portion, this, there are all these parts that they can unpack, whether it's Talmudic teachings. Uh, Artswell now has a, has a great piece that, that does uh, Talmudic teachings on, on the weekly Parsha. Uh, and there are various publications that do it as well. Halachic teachings on the weekly Parsha. That might be your thing, but, but that's where your starting point is. And for other people, the starting point will be, well, the, traditionally in yeshiva, the starting point is actually the Talmud. And from the Talmud, We revert. We work backwards, and most yeshiva bachram yeshiva students are learning their Tanakh, their Bible, from the Talmud. Correct. So, but however we're doing it, we need to. You need to find out what's your entry point, where's your passion, and how are we going to use that as a springboard to getting the full package of Torah.
0: Yeah, and if I can build on what you're saying, because it's so important, that um, sometimes it takes a really long time. Until you find that there are some people that are privileged right away, they're thrown into either, you know, if you're talking about a yeshiva student when he goes to yeshiva or someone meets a rabbi or is put in a in, in, in a certain environment where they they find something right away that excites them and, you know, they're good to go from the onset and then there's other people that it takes them years and years and years of searching for the area of Torah and then maybe after, you know, a long time they they find that. So it may not be something that, it's something that, like you said, you got to pray for it, you know, four times a day, it's not something that we can take for granted. And if I could add one more thing to that is even when you have found it, um, you'll still go through those highs and lows. And sometimes it will be speaking to you more than others. And, you know, I know for me also, there are times when I can go through, you know, I, I can go two years, two, three years deeply immersed in a certain area of study and it will totally lighten my spiritual fire every every single day and then you know i have memories of times again in my adult rabbinic life right you know already i guess people look at me as a rabbi you know this guy must be established in his and i there there i i have specific images in my in my mind of of you know being on a trip to new york and saying you know what i'm just going to go into Eichler's bookshop, right, or whatever. I'm going to go into the, the farm store, the bookstore, and I'm just going to find, because I need something new, I need some new inspiration, I'm going to find something that's going to light my fire, and I go up and down the aisles, and up and down the aisles, and at some point, it just clicks, where it's just little me in the middle of this big bookstore of thousands and thousands of books, and being like, nothing is exciting me right now. And that's just the, you know, we we go through that. So in order to really be a Torah scholar, you got to be ready to go through these these highs and lows.
1: And I, I think as well, I think part of it is the acknowledgement that anything that's of value in life doesn't get given to you on a silver platter. You have to work at it. And when we think about those ebbs and flows, and those ebbs and flows is part and parcel of our, souls being uh, the verse says that the candle of God is the soul of man. And just like a candle flickers, what's happening is that we're constantly flickering. And so we are oscillating. And that frequency is moving back and forth. And sometimes we feel closer to the source, to our spiritual source. And sometimes we feel further away. And like you say, Rabbi, that, that happens with everybody and when we're feeling further away, it just means we have to double down and make the extra effort to, to not just say, well, you know, if I'm not feeling it, then I'm not going to bother. No, I'm not feeling it, so I have to really make an effort to, to bother. And I hear from people who have been learning the transformative DAF in its various iterations over the years. Some people will take the text and understand the text properly and then use the text to be able to say, okay, what's the message that Rabbi Friedman is, is conveying today? Other people will ignore the text. Other people will say, okay, you know what, I just want, I just want a message. And however one enters it is fine. I mean, it's all Tara. But the, my hope is that even if you enter with the latter attitude, well, I, I just want an inspirational message each day, you'll get to a point where you'll say, you know what? I'm now willing to work at that text. I want to understand the text. I, I don't just want what Rabbi Friedman thinks about the text. I want to read the text myself and, and be able to get my own grasp and understanding of the text. And hopefully that will pivot one day to actually seeing the text inside and being uh, uh, motivated to to do more of the daf than than simply that one little uh, section. Sure. I want
0: to get it into the book a little bit. Let's try to unpack a little bit with the book because I enjoyed it a lot. and And, you know, because Dafyomi by nature because Talmud by nature is is you know you could be learning you know one page and then you get to the next page and the discussion the conversation is completely different It's just the nature of the Talmud there's so many different it's not I mean it's it's super well organized but it's totally chaotic you know as well so because of that writing a book like uh, life Yomi daphio dot me and then eventually the transformative daf means that you're going to have a whole wide range of discussions but that being said this one is on tractate rosh hashanah so there is a lot of rosh hashanah themes in there and i I paid a little bit more attention to those just because of the time of year and there were a couple of things that really uh jumped out at me that i i would love to hear you discuss a little bit uh i think it's in your first piece where you discuss um a line in prayer That says that God is mechadesh betuva b'chol yom, that God renews the world each day, tamid, constantly. And you point out sort of this contradiction within this greater piece where you're saying, well, you know, Rosh Hashanah doesn't necessarily have to come once a year. And then you point to this word tamid that actually there is actually a consistent, there's a constant renewal. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because I think that that is such an important mindset for us as we go through
1: life. Sure. You know, as you're speaking to me, I'm, I'm thinking of an example that I don't think I brought in the book, but, uh, but maybe it should have been in, the, in this piece if, if there'd been room for it and might appear some other time. I'm speaking to you right now. And although, our, although your viewers, your listeners aren't hearing this, we're actually having this conversation over a Zoom call. Now, it seems to me right now that you are constantly here um, in uh, conversation with me. The truth is you're not. The truth is, and I'm actually going to frame this in terms of a question about God's name on a screen. We know we're not allowed to erase God's name. And so the question is, when you have God's name in a text on a screen, are you allowed to switch off the screen because is that erasing God's name? So anybody who knows how pixelation and um, um, audiovisual work on a computer screen, it's not that it's actually there. It's that it's being hit with um, light beams constantly to be able to be recreated. If that light would stop for a moment, it would stop being created. So right now, I see you as a constant. I can't tell that, that you're being constantly recreated, but you really are. It's not that you are here constantly, it's that the light beams are being hit so that it appears like you are here as a constant stream. That's what's happening when God is creating the world. We think that the world was created and it is. Everything appears like it's one continuous flow. What's really happening, our sages tell us, is that God recreates the world constantly. If God would stop to create the world, for a moment the world would cease to exist i'm going to if i may um i i hope your your listeners will be okay with this one Go with a matrix analogy so love we'll we'll movie have...
0: analogies okay from the empowered jewish living podcast we should really do a whole series of just movie reviews and how they relate to torah <laughs> yeah. so, um I,
1: i'm 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 going to take the liberty because i think that, that at one point even h.com um, um, has a piece of matrix and, and it's uh, relation to it. So the matrix is made up of zeros and ones. Right? It's a computer program. So the same way our world is created th- through these, this, this series, it's just not a binary zero and one, it's actually 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet <coughs> through which God creates the world constantly. Those letters of the Hebrew al- alphabet are what keeps the world in existence. And by constantly fueling those letters, They continue to exist. If God would stop that energy of those letters, the wall just wouldn't exist. So what seems to us to be a constant is really an an ongoing process. For us, we have this the part of the verse that says, God makes it new for us each day because we don't see it. We don't see any interruption except for most of us once a day. We go to sleep go to sleep, we wake up, it's a new day. What do you mean a new day? A, there, there was no, in time, there was no actual break between yesterday and today. You know, some people uh, throughout the world, there was day at some point, there was no real break. The break was only in terms of my own perspective. And so there was a renewal for me, there was no renewal for God, but now, now at least I have a sense of how that renewal works. But from God's perspective, it's constant. From my perspective, I would think it's never, but God gives me a taste of it by allowing me each day to see that renewal. Now, why is renewal important? Renewal is important because life to a certain extent is linear, that you know, I hope to grow and things get better each day. And but sometimes I need a break from the past because yesterday might not have been such a great day. Might have been a challenging day. And I get to break with yesterday, sleeping. And I give the example in that first teaching of our patriarch Abraham, who is put into a deep slumber as he makes a covenant with God to be that chosen one, to give God's message and to teach his children and descendants after him to be that light to the world of morality, of ethics, of monotheism. But he's placed into a slumber first to be able to make a clean break between the life he knew until now and the life going forward. And we have something similar to that each day as we take a break, cease whatever it was, and be able to say, okay, I can put the past behind me and I can move without move ahead without the baggage of yesterday and just build on the goodness. A similar idea we have is the notion of we, we hope and pray every day, Mashiach come. And we, uh, we say, you know, we're going to do every mitzvah possible to bring Mashiach. And we hope the Mashiach will come now. And Mashiach didn't come yesterday or last year or 100 years ago. And there were good, fine, wonderful, committed Jews. And, and yet Mashiach didn't come. And we say, well, who do we think we are? If, you know, why should Mashiach come now in our generation if he didn't come 100 years ago when there were such devoted, Jews. Answer is, we are like midgets on giant's shoulders, looking over that fence. That giant can't see over the fence. He puts a midget on his shoulders and the midget can now see over the fence to the messianic era. So we're building on all of the merits of previous generations, but what we don't have is any demerits. The demerits, they disappear. They, they, They get wiped away with each succeeding generation. That's like our sleep moment. Your challenges of yesterday, you put those behind you. The positive moments of yesterday, they build. They continue. They don't cease just because it's a new day. I'm now building on that.
0: Right. Wow. And um, I I think that it's such a powerful teaching and very important to, I think, for everyone to figure out some sort of meditation or some sort of practice that you can do i know you know even for me i find very very helpful to take this idea and even you know when you find that a day or a week or a month is not going in the trajectory that you want it to um you know what is your quote unquote slumber what is your way of saying okay this is my way of now unplugging because the, because I'm, you know, with this inertia, my life is going with it. I don't like it. How can I put myself in this metaphoric slumber and then re-enter into my life and try to awaken sort of this power of renewal that you're speaking about? And it really is a powerful practice.
1: Yes, I, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, on a daily basis, because we can't always just curl up in a ball and, and go to sleep in the middle of the day um when things aren't going so well i mean there are ways to take a time out prayer yeah. is a good one prayer is a really good one uh you know to you know focus on your prayers I and mean, suddenly you realize you you know what's important uh what needs to be prioritized but there are other um practical ways that work for people exercise uh, a walk in the woods
0: a walk in the woods if you have you know i I know for me i'm i'm i didn't even realize when i bought our home but we literally have like in our backyard less than two blocks from our home a little path that goes into into the woods and i find that literally i can go on this path and then just sort of clear my head and then come out and 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 just enter back into into my world and really feel a certain sense of renewal. But obviously, it comes along with the understanding that you said the mindset that you said, it's a very, very, very powerful, and very, very important.
1: That's, that's a um, concept that we have, especially as a Hasidic tradition, the concept in the Baal Shem Tov was known to go off and have his moments in the woods alone. Hasidism refers to this as his bodice being alone and being able to just be one with God.
0: Very, very powerful. We have a couple of minutes left, and I just want to pick your brain a little bit. Just I always like to share mainly for me, but also with the audience um, just some some very tactical, very, you know practical things that we could walk away with and and some questions that maybe get a little bit personal. but obviously, I know that you learn. Daf Yomi. And I'm sure that that is a very, very important routine in your life, but maybe you can share with us a little bit about some other habits and routines that are part of your life that really feel like push you forward, uh, that give you vitality, that contribute to your success as a human being, as a rabbi, what are some of those habits and routines? So-
1: so I, I think that a, a lot of one's time is taken up as, as a rabbi of a sizable congregation. But uh, one of the things that I've been very much engaged with over the last year, uh, since the passing of Rabbi Sachs, is uh, catching up on a, a lot of his works that I hadn't read. Uh, and so I've now made my, made my way over the last year, the Ilui Nishmasa in loving memory uh, of his soul and tribute to him. I've made my way through most of his books. And so that's been my goal for the, for the last year. And I've certainly learned so much in terms of you know, practical Judaism and you know what it means to be a light into the nations that I think the Rabbi Sachs, his, he, he was unparalleled. We have very few figures in the history of the Jewish people who made such an impact on the world at large. We're talking the likes of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, who the author of the mission of the precursor to the to the Talmud, uh, who had a personal relationship with Antoninus, but talking the likes of Don Isaac of Barbanel in, in 15th century Spain, and, and Rabbi Sachs, and, and maybe a few others, but really only a few others, who were able to take the message of Torah and say that this is relevant, this has, relevance to the entire world and that that's he's been my inspiration of last year and please God for many years to come
0: wow so that's good so that, that really covers the next thing I was going to ask you and that's what your favorite books and who are your mentors and I guess you sort of wrap that up so since you mentioned Rabbi Sachs if you had to recommend to the listeners is there one one book from Rabbi Sachs that you really feel for you really touched you deeply
1: so I think his final philosophical work morality really sums up everything that he had written until that point he brings all the parts together in that final book man i call it his final book it's not really his final book actually a a, the newest book just came out last week um, something about spirituality it's another book on the weekly parsha i have not yet read it Uh, I, i purchased it not yet read it but it is He's still teaching us, and please Mm -hmm. God, he'll be teaching us for generations to come.
0: Did you ever meet him personally?
1: I I did uh, a couple of times. Uh, When I was a rabbi in Australia, he came as chief rabbi of the Commonwealth to address us, and I I met him then, and I met him on on occasion in England as well.
0: Wow. All right, so we're pretty much out of time. If you had to, um, either from your from your book or just from your overall life, if you have to leave us, it's right before Shoshana. If you had to leave us with a final message, we can take into our Shoshana from everything that you've seen, all of your work. What would you say? Give us, give us something to take with us after this podcast.
1: No. That on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we refer to God as Avino Malkano, our father, our king. On Rosh Hashanah, we coronate God. We declare that he is the king of the universe. But remember, he's also our father. And uh, uh, the love that a parent has for a child is unparalleled. And no matter what you think you've done this past year, what you think you've done throughout your life, your father in heaven loves you. And he wants to shower his bounty upon you. And he wants to give you all the blessings. You just need to pray those big prayers. The more you turn to him, the more you ask, the more he will give. He just wants to have that relationship with you. And so when, you, when you're in Shul, this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, turn to him as a father and say, Dad, give me what I want to need, but also give me what I want. And he will. If you believe that he will, then he will. So I want to wish all of your listeners that they, each of you, may be blessed with being written and sealed in the book of life, the book of health, the book of material and spiritual prosperity, and may you all have nachas from your children and grandchildren and only blessing and simcha throughout your lives.
0: Amen. Rabbi Daniel Friedman, thank you so much for coming on the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. Much success with your book, which I know is going to be available, The Transformative Daft from Mosaica Press. And I'm sure that you can find that on mosaicapress.org. Our, our listeners are well aware with that website because of my own book. And I'm sure it'll be available on Amazon and wherever you get your Jewish books. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for coming on and wishing you a ksiv and a happy sweet new year.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for
0: having me. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.